Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is The Business Brew Spaces Edition. I have long said that I like Netflix's strategy of spending as much as humanly possible to chase scale. I am unsure of whether or not that was wrong or correct of me. So this is a discussion where I signed on to Twitter to have a space to discuss some thoughts and try to find some people to bounce some ideas off of. I think it's fairly clear that I have bias in this conversation, so don't let that impact you. Remember that I am in your ear, so you probably have some sort of bias towards me and just assume I don't know what I'm talking about when you're doing your own work. Anyway, this episode is sponsored by Bastier Partners, a boutique investment bank. Bastier's founder and managing member is Nader Afshar, a fan of the pod. Nader is described as a connector, high integrity, a low-key version of Byron Trot, and the rare investment banker that focuses on the alignment of incentives and interests. I appreciate him allowing me to do some due diligence on his firm, and I appreciate Bastier's support. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Nick, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Bill. How was your uh, your week? My week was okay. Uh, the last three days have been pretty consumed by thinking about uh, Netflix, but you know, I doubt that I have anything that's uh, unique to say on that that other people aren't smarter than me on. I think that's probably the conclusion of, of most people at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I, uh, I have some thoughts. I'll tell you what. I'm really grateful to Andrew Friedman. Um, I I had a call with him, and after that call, I said his arguments are better than mine, and uh, he saved me some money. So he will be getting a nice bottle of wine uh, from me. Was that was that after the after the earnings? No, it was before. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Look, there's a part of me that hates uh, that I have some traitor in me, um, but and I have taken on water from many other places. So do not, you know, this is not like a comment of I'm a genius here. If anything, it's a comment that I had a conversation and thought that I was under research to hold the position. Um, but. I, I thought his arguments were better than mine, and I also thought that if somebody missed in this environment, it was going to be ugly. And I also thought, and I th- still think that, and I also had macro concerns, uh, and I was just kind of like, I don't want to hold this risk. But, you know, I have other risks that's getting washed, so it's not as if I sold. Um, so I don't know. But now, yeah. you know, it's different. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's just I think it's interesting. There's really no place across the whole market that's uh, that's safe, and I think that that kind of makes sense. Um, I mean, dude, for the first time in a very, very long time, there is actual true opportunity cost to to you know like yeah. I, I mean, you can actually that's six percent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You can actually get yield on cash. Yeah, yeah. So I, I get it. It makes sense to me. Um, like, I think it's interesting though. You have like companies like Cleveland Cliffs reported today. Oh, how do you, know, how'd they really do? Crushed it. 
Oh, yeah. Yes, he's such. I mean, I shouldn't. I know some. He upsets some people, but I just love that I, guy. I, I, I love Lorenzo. I mean, like Cliffs is our largest position. I wish and, he didn't uh, make the suicide com- comment. That obviously strikes close to my heart. I did not yeah. like that. Um, no, it's it's not. It's not. It wasn't appropriate. I think that yeah, he's been a lot more um, reserved in in the last couple calls. Like this call, and then the last one, he's hasn't said anything crazy. So um, what do by, you see going his, on there? Um, well, I don't know. I'm not very bullish on it right now, but, uh, so like I was like really bullish on the company for like the last couple months, just because like, um, you know, analysts really don't weren't modeling cost structure very well, uh, and kind of missed a lot of the operating leverage with having a super fixed cost model. Um, so I thought like, oh, you get all this incremental margin expansion, uh, that allows deleveraging. And then the other thing that I thought was super interesting was, you know, you know, for the most part, all contracted pricing that really like limited downside. But like now at this point where all the contracts are already in place, um, the incremental upside really kind of comes from, from spot changing for that portion of the portfolio. So I think there's like a lot less levers that make the the position really interesting. Um, and you're now kind of like being exposed to commodities. And if you have like a really, great view on on steel then then maybe this is a good position for you like i'm not that person and i don't really have a huge variance to anybody there so yeah this is kind of my uh my time to to look other places yeah that makes sense so uh are you guys considering exiting or is it uh Um, i mean don't disclose where you're at but i'm just curious that's not my decision yeah interesting i you know the commodities thing is uh I don't know, man. I mean, uh, we'll see. It's, it's all. I hope that people that were as uh, as nimble getting in are nimble getting out. And uh, the other thing that I know is I know that I don't know enough to know when the time is. And it may have. I mean, a couple of commodities guys have pinged me and they're like, look, man, this is just the first inning or second inning. Um, I get it, I think. But I also know I don't. If that makes yeah, any yeah. sense. I have to throw that pun out there. So you're telling me that it's not a steal? Oh, that was good. That was so right. good. Uh, Did you come up just for that? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I like it. All right, well, good no, for like, you. Um, That's me. I think like the way I look at it is like if you look at a business like um, I'm just I'm trying to think of the most stable business on earth right now, where like the, where you don't have a, a lot to worry about. Okay, let's say like let's say uh, uh, Verisign. If you know that business, yeah. they they yeah they get paid a royalty on every website that that exists, and there's like a two percent degree of uncertainty, maybe a one percent degree of uncertainty on what the revenue will be next year. And you can be like, oh, twenty times earnings is cheap or expensive or whatever. But with something like 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 Cliss, you're like eight times free cash flow is really cheap, but not if I'm completely wrong on price and it trades at two times free cash flow or I'm wrong the other way and it trades at like 900 times free cash flow. Or like that's an exaggeration. So no, like no, I understand like, what you're yeah. saying exactly. Did you listen yeah. to the Investors Podcast with, um, what's his name? He was on last week. Uh, shoot, let me pull up this episode. I thought it was a fantastic episode. Um, and the guy that was on it, it was basically a pitch for charter. So I apologize if I liked it and am biased, but uh, his comment was that, uh, you know, it's, he, he focuses on quality businesses 
And the reason that he does so is that it's much easier. uh, It's Brian Lawrence. Um, It's much easier to model and have a view of price, right? And it's like the way that I I was DMing with somebody, I think he goes, Wall Street Gunslinger is what he goes by. But I I told him he shared on his, I like listened to a podcast randomly that he did. And he, he was talking about, being a little gun or like trigger happy. And I told him, I said, I think that it's important to like take Buffett's idea of investing in a business like manner, uh, like really seriously. And he said, uh, what do you mean by that? And I said, like, if you view your, your allocation of businesses as inventory, like you've got to be able to tell me that you're buying it cheap in order to make money later. And I think there's two ways to get there. You can have a screamingly cheap price on a volatile business that like it's so cheap you can't deny it. Or you can kind of focus on easier to model businesses and pay a a more full value of fare because you have more confidence in the future. Yeah, I think that's like just 100% true. I think the the risk is is when you think you uh, have one of the second... businesses or second category businesses and it's really one of the first ones yeah no doubt no doubt uh which you know netflix arguably may be but but the other side of like netflix not to i mean i'm not trying to bring it back there i think it's a relevant example is you still have 30 billion dollars of subscription revenue yeah and like basically they remind me of somebody who got like uh this is probably not okay to say in 2022, but I'm going to say it like super fat eating a ton of cake. And now they're just, they got to figure out how to like, they can still eat a lot. They just can't only eat sugar. And if they can figure out how to make that spend a little more efficient, I like, I guarantee you there's 20% of efficiency in that spend. I just don't think anybody has had that conversation in that organization ever. Well, like, I think the, the problem is, is like, so I, I t- I've covered Netflix for four years. Um, like the fund I worked at was like one of the largest owners of Netflix for a long time. I think maybe one of the, I think the first Tiger Cub that bought Netflix, actually. And now like I, I own Netflix into the print, like in, in, in a pretty small size and, you know, totally whiffed it and, and exited. But like, so I'm very aware the, the bull case was the revenue growth is very, uh, uncorrelated with the cost structure yeah Um, you make your content investments ahead of time and and revenue grows and your content investments don't necessarily need to scale the problem is because you're making them ahead of time uh, you can't like actually dial them back that fast yeah that's right so if revenue is not going to grow where to where you thought it was going to be a year ago that content's still happening yeah no doubt there's they're uh, screwed for 18 months yeah like so like i mean i i exited like I don't, I don't even think I read the whole quarterly letter. Like I exited like after market. It was just like, I was like, Oh shit. Um, <laughs> so was Bill Ackman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Which I actually thought like, his letter that he wrote was uh, quite good. I think it's very hard to be that loud. And um, I, I think uh, to, to flip within a quarter and be him shows an amount of discipline. Um I think people can take shots at him for yeah. buying, but, but I like, think it's smart. I, my favorite part, though, of people taking shots at Bill Ackman is, like, if you go through these people's Twitter feed and you kind of see what they own, you can see that they're not up 2% of the year like Bill Ackman is. 
Yeah, well, he's had he's had a crazy run. I mean, you know, he's the thing is when you do stuff loudly, and I know this from a very very small perspective. You know, sometimes you look like a fucking idiot, and there's people out there that really like it. The difference between him and I is I don't think most people think I'm an asshole, and he doesn't have the most uh, yeah love on the street. I, I will say, I think Bill Ackman is, is maybe hated way too much. And I'll give you some personal anecdotes. I've never met Bill Ackman, but one of my really close friends that I work with has. Um, so when he was in college, before he ended up like going to the buy side, he was like 18. He did a lot of work on a business that was very similar to, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting that REIT that he owned that did really well. Um, it was like something growth properties. Yeah. General growth. Well, well, didn't he, he spun Howard Hughes out of general growth, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my, my friend was looking at a very similar thing. This was like six years ago. And he had called Bill Ackman and got like Bill Ackman's assistant just to pitch him the idea, like just like something that college kids always try to call these people and, and you never hear back. And I guess like within two days, Bill Ackman called him and talked to him for like an hour and a half and like walked through the idea and said like, I think you got promise yeah. and gave him feedback and helped him out. I, I just think like, if we really get focused on like what you hear, like in the news, I think it really divorces ourselves from like how someone might be as a person. And I, I know it's just one example, but I, I think he's like probably not as like bad as people think. Well, I think he's probably a, a good guy. It's objectively true. First of all, when people want to shit on him for crying at the bottom, like they really need to go watch the entire interview. I do not yeah. believe the narrative of the interview. Secondly, I'm not going to sit here and and like defend him to the nth degree because there's people out there that know way more about his history than I do. And I don't really care to get into it. I just, I have met him twice. He was, he was nice to me both times. Uh, I have heard a similar anecdote of him picking up the phone and calling somebody. So until he gives me a personal reason not to like him, uh, yeah, I'll like him. And dude, like the guy's a silver Fox. I mean, how can you, you can't hate him. Right? <laughs> well, I think that's part of why people don't like him. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, I respect the guy. And like, I mean, he puts out a lot of like educational resources. That I remember when I was learning how to like invest, like I, I used all of that and yeah. it was super helpful. So, um, so let me know. ask you something. If you covered uh, Netflix, I, and this is not a unique thought. I've always thought this though. This is not, I'm not a Johnny, Johnny come lately to this NBCU and Netflix. There is a marriage there. Brian Roberts. I don't know how the fuck to pitch this. Cause I'm not an investment banker. But Brian Roberts, I legitimately think, has the chance to buy NBCU out of GE in the financial crisis and then figure out a way to flip it to Netflix at like what I think is probably close to the peak value that NBCU will ever see. Because if they go down this $5 billion to, to grow Peacock, they are fucked. But like he's got yeah. assets there that Netflix needs badly. But like, I, I think, I think he's, I don't know. It, it seems to me like the way they've handled Peacock and the fact that they haven't really like put the foot on the gas just makes them look a lot better right now. Yeah. No. You, I mean, like, like, like the, the people who've done the best in this streaming business, I think by far is Sony. Yeah. Um, look, I, I just don't know how anyone gets really excited. Like I, I, I we, we, like I covered Disney for a while and like, got involved during COVID and then, you know, exited after the investor day. And I just remember sitting there like staring at my model after they guided to like 230 
235 or 245 or 245 to 265, something like that. Um, subs in like five years. And I was like, how the hell is that going to happen? I just remember like trying to input the numbers into my model and not being able to figure out how to get there. Yeah. And I was like, if you look, I was like, these economics aren't that great. And to me, I don't know, it, it just seems hard for anyone uh, to, to, to win. And I was like, Netflix is the only one that could. And now it seems like maybe that's not as, as, as true as I thought. I just don't think the advantages that linear companies have uh, in linear, like really work in streaming because your content doesn't need to be actually that good to sell because like you're captive buyers and cable. So I don't know. I don't I, I think th you're necessarily wrong. Um, I do think that there are creative things that can be done with release cadences. I do think that uh, like, I, the MTV challenge, I mean, there's assets in Paramount that would be really good on a, I mean, right now I'm talking Netflix, but Warner Brothers Discovery could do this too. I mean, I think Zaslav's entire pitch of Warner Brothers Discovery is, look, we have the stuff that's like cheap to make that women and men, right, love to watch. And uh, we have HBO for that, you know, the stuff that's going to make you come in. And I've kind of always discounted him because I've thought of him a little bit as like a financial engineer, not really invest in the business as opposed to just like get dragged along by the bundle. Um, but I did an interview recently with an expert uh, who is actually an expert. Uh, I think she was in charge of EMEA for discovery. Um and I asked her, I said, do you think that Zaslav is a builder or do you think he's like, I, I think I actually said like my bias is to think that uh, Zaslav is an acquirer and not a builder. And do you think that I'm wrong in like my perception of how I'm viewing the world? And what she said is she said that uh, she described him two ways. She said he's a walking relationship. So like that stuff that you read about picking up the phone and, and wanting to talk to somebody is like very true. And she said, I don't know if he personally knows how to build, but I am certain that he knows how to put a team of builders around him. Uh, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I, 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 and I also think like the point that is made on like the content working well together, I, I think that just generally makes sense. I think like the reason I'm not involved is like, I don't know. I, I just think like traditional Hollywood or traditional media businesses have this really big problem, which is there's a whole lot of wealthy people in Hollywood. Yep. And there's not a whole lot of value that's been created in the last 10 years. I, I just think yep. that there's, there's, there's this sink in cash flows that goes to people who are not the shareholder. And I think like the problem is everyone's still really applying like unit economics that probably don't exist Yeah. Uh, to like the out year numbers. So it's just not a place I want to be involved. Let um, me ask you something, because I think that the, I'm exactly where you are. And like, I, shame on me for not seeing the entire sector as a structural short on a capital cycle theory. Like, there's just too much money entering. When Disney went to D to C and everybody was doing a sum of the parts, do you think I'm accurate in saying that they were doing so looking at Netflix's multiple and applying that to Disney Plus? Uh, I can tell you, you were not. Okay. Because it was actually more extreme than that. People didn't take the Netflix multiple. People took the Netflix value per sub. Okay. All right. Yeah. Every single person I knew 
Uh, that's what they did. Um, and here, but there's a big problem with that, right? Well, yeah, especially when uh, Netflix's valuation gets destroyed. Well, but yes, but there was a other big, than that, there's a big problem back then, which is one third of your Disney Plus subs are like paying you a dollar, and it costs like two dollars and fifty cents to serve them, which are the India Hotstar ones. Yep, with the IPL right. So like, ultimately, like, I don't know. Back in like December 2020, I was like, okay, like, like Disney has had like an awesome run. But like IPL rights, I don't I don't know if they get those again. And I was like, okay, I think this is like this is the time where I don't want to own this. Um, but that was that was that was uh, that was that was it. Um, I don't know. Like I think I, I don't think like the whole space was like a secular short, right? Like I I, I obviously didn't make money on on the calls I'm about to say right now. But like yeah, I mean I guess Paramount I was Paramount did well. But like everyone recognized. I think almost everyone recognized that like owners of content were going to do really well, like formula one and like worldwide wrestling, but like very few people actually, I think like made that call and like, like put on the position, like very, and the people who did did very well. And, and I, it, it, it was very good ideas and, and, and very clearly like, like they're the clear undeniable winners because it doesn't matter what the economics look like if everyone needs to buy that content. Which is why I think like Sony has done so well in terms of their participation in streaming because they just give or sell content to other people. But I don't know. I think it's it's a it's a very challenging space um, because his, and I think the reason it's so challenging is like if you go back 15 years ago, it's really hard to think of like a better business model than what legacy media was. Yeah. It was pretty decent for the consumer too, even though people don't like it. Um, I mean, I, I, but I'm an old man. I don't mind the bundle. I still sub to the bundle. So that's how old I am. Yeah. I mean, if you watch a lot of sports, right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing I've got, you know, I mean, three kids, they're watching something different. No, they usually watch something on a streaming service, but, um, and then, you know, my wife likes stuff. I'm still watching, you know, the challenge whenever it comes out every single season, like a fiend. And I would maybe even watch the retired version. Uh, and then we got sports. So there's just, just like, it serves a need. Yeah. I, I, I definitely see that. So who do you get your bundle from? Oh, Xfinity, but they don't, uh, they don't give me like, so I don't want to pay the rental fees on the box. So I'm willing to put up with how frustrated I get with their, they have this beta app. This is what I don't understand about Comcast strategy. I think that their box is like the best thing. Like I really, really like their, their box a lot. Um, and then they won't give it to you, right? They try to get you to, to do rentals. So now they've got this beta product that they give you, which is awful. You can't like, if it's live, you can't fast forward through commercials. You can't rewind uh, so you can't like catch up instead you have to record and then start it on delay. And then when you're fast forwarding through commercials, you can't see anything. So you're just like randomly pressing play and it's not yeah. easy to rewind. It's like the shittiest experience ever. Uh, but it's really cheap. So I say whatever. And, um, and then, uh, the, you know, and then they're also, they have Peacock and it's like, what are you guys trying to do? Like you, I just don't understand their distribution strategy. No, it's quite confusing. Like, I only have Peacock to watch uh, the new episodes of um, 
shit, I just forgot the show. It's it's the Yellowstone. Yeah, Yellowstone. But um, I don't know. I mean, the thing that frustrates me about cable is the geographies don't make sense. Like, I'm literally staring at the headquarters of Charter right now outside my window. And I have I have optimum from Altice. They don't cover this. Re- this is this. It's yeah. two blocks away. They don't cover it. Well, and it's like, nice it's that you're close to the train. Yeah, very I like nice that charter story. building. Yeah, it's nice. They have the, the they just built. We're just finished moving into the, the two new ones they built. Yeah, it's very nice. You live around there too. But, yeah, yeah, I live in um, yeah. the Harbor Point. That's right next to the buildings. Nice area. Yeah, it's nice. I pulled up I pulled up Disney, Netflix, and Paramount from December thirty first, twenty twenty to today. And I mean Paramount's the best performing at negative seventeen percent. And like the thing is, is like that was like a hard short if you wanted to short it, because like you got you got killed in, in March of twenty one. Yeah. Well, dude, that's the thing that's so hard about shorting generally. Like you know, I, I, I've been singing Andrew Friedman's praises this week a little bit, but I, I respect what he does. And, and once I understood how he looked at the world, I, I respected it more. Like, I can have a conversation with him and get to the point of the conversation where uh, I can be like, okay, well, now, now, the, now we agree on the facts, and then how we're looking at them is sort of different. And I, I like to be able to do that with people. Um, I just like how nice he is. He's, a, nice he's guy. a great guy. He's a great guy and he's trying to build a business and he's got a kid. Like I will do anything that I can to support it. Yeah. Um, but the, um, crud, what was I thinking? Oh, anyway, the problem with his Netflix short is like, then COVID comes and you get run over and I'm just not like, I'm barely smart enough. I, I don't even know if I'm smart enough to run a long book. I think long short would drive me insane. But like, the thing is, is like, Netflix kind of ran up at the same time most of your shorts would have ran up. Yeah. So it's not a big deal. And like, 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 like if you were like long Netflix, short Disney, like that, that kind of ended up working at the same time. Yeah. I guess you got to put a short on and in like, the same sector, long, huh? Yeah. If you're a long Netflix, short Disney through 2021, like that was awesome. Right. Yeah. And then, then like 2022, it's just, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, where, that's where the problem that's where the problem starts right? for, for you if you're but um yeah i mean i, I think that's like that's the, the thing or, or if you were like you could have been like short netflix and like probably like long facebook or google right like, like that's probably like where you would have been i don't know yeah i, I wasn't i wasn't looking at, any, at doing anything like that we, we we were long we were long netflix and short fubo for 2021 oh that worked obviously out. not not anywhere close in size to the to like them being neutral obviously yeah <laughs> cuz like you know fubo was so tiny like it was like so so liquid it like literally it didn't matter but um, that was that was the only media short we had fubo um, was a real piece of trash huh yeah, I remember we put that short on at the end of 2020. Like, I remember I had to go to work on like December 23rd, 24th, and 25th uh, to work on that. And try, we were like calling up everybody to get liquidity. It was really hard. And then I remember we spoke with David Gandler like on the 23rd of December. Uh, and after meeting with him, we we're like, holy shit, this guy's a snake oil salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, that's how you talk to management. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember we asked him, it was like, we asked him about like the content lineup 
and I was like, aren't you worried about like not having like TNT and then TBS like for like March Madness? And he's like, no, that's fine. And I was like, okay. Uh, and then we talked to like, we found every bowl we could find. And we're like, like, where, where, what do you guys think of like them spending all this money on like, I think it was USA, like a bunch of new channels they had. And they're like, they don't have those channels. And we're like, well, like we're on the website and it has it. And they're like, you're wrong. And I was like, okay. It was just, it was very, it was very crazy. Cause I was like, I don't know, like it ended up being like a very consensus short, but like the first like month and a half was really scary because like you got stuck in the meme trade and everything. Those meme trades are wild. I don't know that they're over, but uh, I do think that the, uh, I don't know, it seems as though we're probably settling into um, maybe a less aggressive underwriting environment in the not too distant future. Then again, I don't know how short people's memories are. Uh, well, I mean, I think like, I think the problem is, 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 is now you have like a different problem where, where you have like, uh, you have people having to unwind positions at maybe inopportune times. So that's, that's a completely different buyer. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I have no idea where people are on a gross, gross level. Right. So that, that's, that's a, that's a, a different kind of issue, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see these travel names. Like every single travel company is about to talk about how good their business is and how it's never been as good. I'm certain of it. Disney's parks are just going to crush. Uh, So I, I don't know. There's like, there's all these wonky, like there was the COVID pull forward. Now there's the COVID hangover. Do you end up with a travel sort of like, are people going to over-extrapolate these current results or are they going to learn the lesson? Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff going on out there. That's why I, I'm just very nervous to be anywhere that's attached to consumer. So, I mean, outside of like, I guess, Google, and I, I do have a tiny bit of Peloton, but outside of those two businesses, everything I have is like B2B. Oh, I guess Amazon's consumer too. I was thinking only AWS. So, but like, I don't know, everything I'm trying to trying to stay away from consumer. Consumer's in pretty good consumer. shape though, man. Well, I consumer is in very good shape, but like I have no idea like how the demand shapes out. So like I own Fair Isaac and that has like attachments to consumer, but like its business is B2B, right? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So like I think you gotta keep in mind, like, hey guys, I'm I'm on the phone. Sorry. I don't know. If you heard I don't that. Know, man. They sound like they're really cute kids. Though. They are yeah. relatively cute kids, but not when they're okay. screaming. <laughs> I mean, we all did it. Yes, so. this is true. But uh, I don't know. Like, like everything, every business has an attachment to consumer in some way. It's just like a matter of like how how is it going to like be talked about on a quarterly call, and yeah. and like where is things on like the resumption curve right so like like a business like avalara like i don't own it but like it's it's like e-commerce or it's, it's not e-commerce but it's sales tax automation and heavily related to e-commerce which has but it doesn't like get paid on volume of e-commerce right so like that seems like relatively safer than like going long etsy or something right but or big commerce or something so it's just more of the thinking through like I don't want to take like that kind of bet on something I don't know. Yeah. Um, and you can pay like similar valuations. So that's, that's kind of my, my, my thought process. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, especially at similar valuations. I, uh, I've looked at Evlara. I, 
I probably need to spend more time doing it and less time thinking about media. But unfortunately, I'm like a fiend. I can, I can, uh, I can send you my write-up. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd like to see it. Uh, Black Line is also something that I find kind of interesting. I, I like those I've businesses. I've never, never looked at that one before. Yeah, um, I mean, you're looking at, you know, basically B2B software and accountants. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's the high pitch, right? I mean, there's a ton of stuff between now and then. But uh, foundationally, I like where your starting point is there. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 uh, it's it's safer. And I, I, I'm personally like, I don't do a lot in software, um, but like the the two software businesses I, I have are like CrowdStrike and ZoomInfo, hmm. um, and it's kind of more like if you're going to be in software, I, I, I want I want it to be free cash flow positive. But yeah. secondly, uh, it needs to be something where you buy it and uh, it's either super important and it, or and it's impossible to leave, or you buy it and you never think about it again. And I like I'm guessing Blackline's in the same position for like Avalar, like you buy it. And you never think about it again because it's not part of your business. Yeah, like, I think it's the like old niche thing. Yeah, like CrowdStrike is like an awesome product, but like no one's business ever was like competitively better than their competitor because they had better cybersecurity. It's not something you fuck around with. Yeah. Right. Well, you know what's interesting? My buddy that was in cybersecurity, uh, he recently just had a successful exit, but I asked him about CrowdStrike oh, that's awesome. and he was like, uh, he was like, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't touch it. He's like, no cybersecurity actually works. And, you know, it like, I-, I don't know. He was so negative. And then another person that I know that was close missed it too. And later I was talking to them uh, and one of them was like, I think that the people that were closest might have missed it be- missed it because of like the history of the industry. Uh, yeah. And they just didn't quite see what it might become, which is kind of interesting I mean- how that happened. I missed it very early on um, and like did not get there. Like people were telling me about it all the time. And I was like, I don't know, man, none of these cybersecurity companies ever seem durable. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you always got to like be mad at yourself for like making these quick judgments and not reading the S1. Yeah. And I think I defaulted to like, maybe you should just read the S1 and like read the filing and, and then make a decision. Um, there's some businesses where I'm like positive, like where I'm never going to look at them because like my gut check will always tell me that's a bad idea, but like, I think you gotta be a little bit more open. Yeah. So, but so, so, some of these things, like, I don't know, I don't know what the thought process is to, to buy them, but. I wonder what um, Expensify is done. Have, did you ever look at Expensify's S1? I did. There was that, there was a, there was one line in Expensify that made me not want to buy Expensify, but, and I, I'm, I passed on that one. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't watched the stock. I just thought that it's funny that they have uh, as the, one of their core qualities get shit done or whatever. Uh, yeah, like, that's I think, interesting. I think, I think there's a there's a line. I think that's on page one seventy four of the S one that I was like, oh, I don't want. I don't think that management team like cares about shareholders as much as they should. Nice. Um, and I I passed. There you go. Um, I, I think it's one hundred seventy four. I, I don't. I'm not. If, you, if this, I don't. I'm not going to say the line. Yeah. But, yeah. I uh I I didn't even get that far. I was kind of like I think I get this, but I like also don't get it. I do like those I the idea of sort of bottoms up growing like a weed. Um Yeah. Like that that makes sense to me. Data dogs like that from what I understand, but now I'm talking about things that I don't really know. I I don't know that business either. No. That, that that that's one I probably should have known, but don't. Um but yeah, no. I Yeah, I think uh 
I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a rough environment because so much can change so quickly. Um, and I, I think like right now, maybe it's like a good time to be exposed to, to businesses where like the value is like almost binary. Um, which I know that sounds really stupid, but like if the value is already two years out, then it's a lot less impacted on what's going to happen in the next two years. Um, so like, like hypothetically, if you're a business that's launching a satellite or something, and that satellite launches in two years, like maybe that's a good place to, to be. Hmm. Not going to be super impacted by uh, by quarterly numbers and a recession. Yeah, I just, man, I don't know. I'm probably such an idiot. I'm just not sure I see the recession coming. That said, uh, real... so the thing is, I, I don't either, right? Like, yeah. like and that that's the, and I don't know. Like, uh, so FICO is is my largest position, and um, I thought I was a genius on that one, and then now I now I'm like, oh well, that was that was that hasn't been as good as I thought. Uh, things things all reversed in like four weeks, but like. Like mortgages are obviously originations are going to be down. Like uh, Equifax said they're going to be down forty percent year over year, and that'll be twenty five percent below the ten year average before COVID. So like like GFC levels is like kind of like what they're predicting. Yeah. And like if you model that through the FICO, that's like a three percent hit to revenue. Um, it, so it's not a huge deal. And like the consumer and auto loans like look really good. Like American Express, I think it was yesterday. Was like consumers are super healthy. Oh, like, credit books are gonna look insanely strong. Yeah, so I, it's just like hard for me to like not. It's hard for me to like see like what people are pricing in, and that's totally fine with me. But it's it's. I think it's also just like you have. To, I think it, you get in this position like if you run money for someone else, where you're like, shit. It's one place. It's one thing to be wrong on like a name that like you obviously. Uh, couldn't have seen something happening. It's another thing to be wrong on something like where it's super tied to the macro environment or credit cycles and you should have like not had that risk. So I think yeah. a lot of people are just like, you can't be here. And that that's totally fine. And that's kind of like, I guess where your advantage can be if you have a longer time horizon, but yeah. That said, you got to be willing to live through the volatility if what was obvious actually occurs. You know, I've often been like, oh, it's priced in and it's not. It Certainly when the I, tape comes out, it doesn't feel it. I have a, I have this thing on my desk that says it's priced just because it's priced in doesn't mean it won't get priced in again. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So just mentally prepare. Yeah. It's like when the companies issue a press release and then a month later, just issue the same press release and the stock goes up again or down again. Yeah. It's crazy. So yeah, you just gotta be, um, gotta, gotta be aware, but that's, I I don't know if this guy Bill is is in this space or not, but he's he always sends me like um or he's got me looking at like tax receipt data. Um it's insane the inflows. Now, something interesting that he was like he's really into the plumbing of the market and if he wants to come up and talk about it, he can if he's here. But uh he walked me through this yesterday. The uh who got who got sent what? I'm going to mess this up, I think. Uh, reserve balances with Federal Reserve banks decreased. I don't know. Something about the plumbing of the market sent like a ton of capital out of um, like fiscal. Like basically it took it out of the system. Uh, right. So it's kind of like phantom tightening, which is, you know, I kind of, I mean, Mike Green has referred to to inflation as tightening. I think that's one way to think of it. Um, and then you've got rates like, 
I do understand why people are nervous for sure. But um, like Darden restaurants, I mean, read that earnings call and read what they were saying about, uh, you know, lower income people and where they thought raises were, I mean, going. And they basically said what's different this time is like labor has a real strong bargaining position. And yeah, it's everywhere. Now, is that how tops look? Probably, right? Construction's high. That's got huge multiplier effects. What happens if that slows? But then I get into the housing data and it's like, well, tell me how the tightness in house supply goes away other than everyone that's got yeah, an Airbnb floods the system with houses. Right. And I don't even know how to, you know, quantify Airbnbs as a percentage of total homes owned, but that's probably, I, I guess, a data point that would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, well, also like a lot of Airbnbs are are like apartment units, technically. Yeah, and a lot so too like, are like something that I've stayed in one in Denver where it was a family, and they were like they put a price tag on it, and if somebody hit the bid, they were going to go on vacation. If they didn't, they'd stay. So it's not like actually you know, a vacant home but, that can just be sold. Right. Yeah. And I also just think like the number of, of homes for sale is so low. I think it's like, there's five X more realtors in the United States than homes for, for sale. That was some stat I saw. I don't know if that's accurate. And, and obviously I would, I would verify that. Um, if you're, if you're planning on using it as part of an investment process, but <laughs> I heard that somewhere. Um, I don't know. I mean, the way I think about it is like, I feel like if there is a recession, it's going to be like a really, really weird one where I'm, I'm, I feel very confident that auto sales will go up just because like supply is so suppressed and there's probably demand for 18, 19 million cars and only 14 million are being produced. Um, I think obviously like used car prices will go way down because of that. And then I think housing, like their housing starts are so low and now they're like close to all time highs. So that fixes that supply demand problem. Well, you got to get completions. The problem is there's no completions. Right. But like, okay. So if you can't complete, how do you get, uh, like that seems to be a supply issue, not a demand issue. I know they're trying to throttle demand through, uh, rates, but I, I may have this wrong in my head, but it's like, okay, well, if rates go up, then people already owning homes are less likely to move. How does that not exacerbate the supply demand problem? Yeah, that's exactly like what I thought, right? Like, like a business like Fair Isaac, like the risk I don't think is like people don't apply for mortgages. It's like people don't apply for refinancing, which is arguably like it's just as important for the business. But it's not like a it's not like I think like I don't think it's the same thing as like in 2007, like 2008. Right. I think like you can make the argument that like housing prices are going to go down, but I feel like units sold probably go up. If that makes sense. Uh, say that again. Like, I feel like the, the value of homes likely go down just from interest rates, but I feel like the volume of sales probably go up because like supply has been constrained. Um, I don't know if I, I don't cover that. housing either. So I, don't I don't think know. I buy that. I think I would buy if you said the volume of new home sales go up. Right, right. That, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. but new and existing, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think go up. Right, right. Um, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, new, new, new homes. Yeah, I mean, new homes have a multiplier effect attached to them. There's a lot of jobs that creates. So I don't know. Yeah. 
other than other than how can we possibly not have a recession given rates going up commodities going up you're an idiot i don't know how to tell myself that there's a recession coming i i mean i think it's i think it's at the point where i have no idea yeah um, that's kind of where i get to <laughs> yeah so i think I, i'm limiting myself to only owning like one shitty business in a very small small portion small sizing and and you know have 90 percent of my capital in like businesses that I'm, I'm, I'm think are super high quality and, and are pretty resistant. Um, and you know, other than that, I'm not trying to make any decisions on, on how exposed I am or anything. Yeah. Um, just, just kind of making the same decisions as always and, and trying to limit the number of decisions I make every day is I think the way to go. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I've been looking at builders first source for a while. I continue to look, I've been looking at, you know, I don't know, some of the, some cyclical names, but I'm just not doing anything, which yeah. has been a terrible decision. I should have just sold, sold everything and sat out like Akram's razor said. Yeah. Well, I, I'm looking for the people who, uh, on a dime went short in November and <laughs> stuff. Uh, we got, we, you know, there's, there's, but you'll find out later. Yeah. You find out yeah, once, exactly. once we rebound, you'll yes. find out that they covered yes. all the shorts. Like, like I covered my shorts at the bottom and I went 300% long, you know? Yeah. Lots of, lots of those people. Um, I, I do know someone who went 200% net long though at the bottom of COVID, which was my mom, but she did it on accident, not knowing that <laughs> what margin was. <laughs> she's like, I'm going to start one of these, uh, these, these interactive brokers account. And she's like, Oh, I have extra. Like, she didn't, oh, she didn't even know scary. how much she put it in. And she, she killed it. <laughs> yeah. But that's she's scary. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I had to explain that to her like two months later when I found out, and, you know, obviously should have let her keep being levered for a couple more months in her mind. But, uh, you know, long yeah. like Tesla and Disney and all that stuff. So she did, she did really great, but well, good for her. Uh, Better lucky than good. Yeah. I know my boss is like, maybe I should fire you and hire her. And I was like, Oh yeah, probably good. <laughs> good luck selling your risk management practices. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know, Bill. I, most, I think you'd be surprised. Most hedge funds don't really have a risk management team. or anything. Well, I have no idea. I just know, uh, I just know the the Brewster risk management sometimes feels frazzled and I'm just trying to figure my way out. Yeah. But as you said, I think doing less is probably doing more. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I think I think it's important like to, to know like there are some people who just like can figure this stuff out. Um and I, I know you say like all the time that like uh like reading the Warren Buffett stuff like mate or or Ben Graham stuff like hurt your development. I'm gonna say right now. Uh, reading the George Soros stuff was what hurt me. I don't know that it hurt me. I I I owe everything yeah. of my like foundation to right. that stuff. I think what hurt yeah. me was when when Buffett would say stuff like "tech is too hard," and I yeah, went yeah, exactly. to Buffett as if I was a pupil in a church that didn't need to think for myself because I was too like I was an idiot. You know, but like I, I did that, too. Yeah. And because I was listening to someone smart, I thought I was smart. But like I was a moron. Uh, that's what hurt me. Uh, but but their, I think their foundation that, now that I understand it, you know, well, that is much better, though, than like 
if you read like all like alchemy of finance and all the George Soros stuff and you're in like you read and you're like, Oh wow, he did so well. And the takeaway should be like, George Soros is like another level thinker, another level, just like understanding of the market and like, don't try to replicate him. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's impossible. Uh, and that, that's, that was my approach. It's just, I don't know. I think George Soros's track record is like the most insane track record because there's so many decisions that were made and so frequently like like Warren Buffett's amazing and I don't think you could ever argue that. Um, it's just like the number of decisions he made um, wasn't as many. So like the, the probability of, of things being an extreme, right, is, is lower than, than George Soros because he had to be right so many more times. And, um, it's just, I think, impossible to replicate that kind of kind of uh, strategy unless you are someone like him and I, I i concluded i'm not or you have to be um and i i don't actually know soros that well uh or but i'm thinking if you have that many bets you've got to be really really quick to pull them off yeah well it's not like he's placing tons of bets at once it's like no i know don't but like you yeah, gotta yeah, shift yeah. quick yeah 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 like, i think george soros said i'm wrong more often than i'm right I think he said you only need to be right 33% of the time to make money. As long yeah, he's as like Adam Dunn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that that's that's hard. That's hard to have that mentality. Very yeah, hard. you know what's tough about that too, if you truly have that kind of a setup in your in your strategy, is like, man, you are taking a lot of cuts. And like to stay, yeah. to not have that affect you mentally. Um, it's insane. Yeah, it is. And inevitably, you're going to go through a cold streak that, like, taking that many cuts feels even worse. Yeah, like, I think, like, his background, right? Like, he, he grew up in, like, Soviet republics, right? Like, he just, it, he's, he's come from a harder life than me, you know? He, he, he can handle the things I can't. So, I just think it's it's part of uh, his his mental capacity and his background to, to be a lot better at things like that than, than most. So, I think you got to figure out, like, there's so many ways to make money in the market and, and you got to find the one that matches up with your mindset and your, your emotions. And, and that's, that's the only thing you can do. So I'll for tell me, you it's not funny, making tons man. of decisions. Like one of, one of the ways that I do it and you know, everybody that loves to hate on Berkshire when it's not doing well, you know, Oh, how can you own Berkshire? It's like, I missed a lot of stuff and uh, Buffett crushed it while I was missing it. So it's nice to have him doing something on my behalf. How it works from here yeah. is kind of, you know, maybe a different story, but um, I don't know. Like it's interesting to see what he's bet on recently and we'll see if it works. I hope it, I obviously hope it does, but for him, I hope it does too. Yeah. It'd be really funny if he came out with a massive media bet here, like just like across the board. I I, I always like, I, I always sit back and like try to like guess what Warren Buffett would buy. And I thought during COVID he was going to buy like all of Boeing. That was like my thought process. And, uh -huh. you know, obviously it didn't happen. So I'm wondering what, he, what he'll do if he does anything. But... I had a buddy that worked at Boeing and he said that it is so hard. He managed, um, you know, like building the planes or whatever. And he was like, there, you'll have a guy who's like trained to drill in a specific rivet and he will just go on like a bender for five days and he won't come into work. And because of the union contract, there's like nothing you can do and no Jesus. one else can drill the rivet. So you have to like, you know, you're producing these planes and you have to have like contingency plans around random guys getting drunk for five days. He was, 
It was interesting. He's a very smart guy. Uh, he was fun to talk to about that. My uh, my grandpa worked at McDonnell Douglas and then at, at Boeing after the acquisition. And he's like, McDonnell Douglas had such a terrible culture. And he, they got to Boeing and like, these people are great. And he's like, you could slowly watch the culture of McDonnell Douglas diffuse throughout Boeing. Interesting. And he said it was so sad. Hmm. But yeah. Um, but no, I think, I mean, Boeing, I, I don't, I've never covered it in detail. It's just like, that just seems like a, a Warren Buffett business. So I, I thought like that would be a, a place for me to go. And it was like, I think at, in COVID it was worth 80, 90 billion. So like, if you pay like a premium, like you had the ability to buy it at the time and obviously that didn't happen. So I always try to guess what he would do. I have no idea. Do you think he, do, do you see him like buying like a whole media business? I Oh, I could see him doing it. I, I mean, I could see. Look, I think everybody uh, right now, well, I don't, not everybody, but I think a predominant narrative, at least around big media, is is this just going to be a bloodbath where people, you know, it's basically capital cycle theory. Uh, I think the smart shorts had this a year ago. Uh, capital cycle theory, all this competition coming, let's get short. Uh, I think now people are starting to wonder you know, what's going to happen with all this spend. And I think, I think the more interesting question to ask is what does the valuation implosion of Netflix actually do to people's willingness to spend in 18 months on content? And does this, do people start talking about getting really rational on spend? And if that's the case, what are we looking at? What environment are we looking at two years from now? I I mean, that is kind of a more interesting question to me. I, I, well, I, I think like, like I don't have a position here and I haven't thought in detail and I don't know, I don't follow any of the legacy media businesses any, anymore. So I'm probably, I could be wrong here, but like my thought process would be this environment's like, or change in, in, in looking at things is probably worse for legacy media businesses because really like most of the value you're ascribing five years from now to, in a legacy media business is is this streaming shift and if you look at the shareholder bases in a lot of these businesses like they've kind of shifted a little bit where you don't have like the same people owning them that you did five years ago and if you're change if you change your model now where you're not spending nearly as much on content they don't ramp nearly as fast and the economics are a lot worse like the value in five years shifts a lot more to being the traditional legacy media business that's in secular decline with declining margins. That's right. So, yeah. And remember, most of them are all still levered. Yes. And they're all rampant. They've all committed at least to ramp spend into subscale streaming products, believing that that's going to get them a higher multiple. But the person that has the highest multiple just collapsed. So now what the fuck do you do? I think the other problem is like, you know, you, you could say like maybe Reed Hastings could think differently or, or, or whatever, but he's, you know, he's obviously like an, an executor and he's done really well and he had awesome vision and, and you know, we'll still go down as like one of the better CEOs. It's really hard to say that about anyone running a legacy media business these days. Dude, Reed Hastings, like, I mean, they have $30 billion of direct to consumer yeah, like, subscription revenue. Like Reed, he built out an asset yeah, base and no one awesome. gave a shit while he did it. And if, you know, today's stock doesn't care what the stock did before, right? So right. I just think it's important to be rational about what the playing field really looks like. And, you know, let's see what cord cutting looks like this upcoming quarter. 
Uh, if that accelerated, like, I don't know. It's going to be tough for people to, you're, you're basically trying to get on a hamster wheel to outrun a melting ice cube to chase a prize that may not even exist. That's not a fun hand. Well, like, but keep in mind, there's like spikes on the, the hamster wheel, right? Because you're bleeding cash to do it. <laughs> yeah, so it's even more fun than I described. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's hard. It's really tough. So I don't know. I th- the thing is, though, like media is still like, there's a lot, there's, there are good businesses in media, right? Like, like Universal Music, Warner Music, like those are really good businesses. Um, I have no idea what the short-term dynamic look, look like because I, I haven't followed them in a while, but like those are really good businesses. I mean, there's like there's definitely places that could be longs. I just don't know don't really know how you how you make money in like a legacy media business five years from now because like I, I, when i talk to people they're like oh i pay 10 times earnings and i was like okay well if if, if we just kind of like look at the the trend line for for earnings and assume that gets better and we apply a 20 times multiple five years from now like you're still down 30 percent. yeah right like and not to mention your earnings is understating your cash cost, which is now going yeah. to reinvest in a different distribution medium that you're probably going to lose in. Like, yeah, that's tough. And like your CEO still gets paid $400 million a year, whether you make money or not. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what I've been trying to get myself to get rational and think about is like, okay, from, you know, from a capital cycle theory, where are we in two years? What's the conversation? Um, and you know, it, as my head has come back and forth to Netflix, I've thought, okay, well, is it possible that they're able to hack like cheap, shitty programming that people love, you know, like reality TV, like the entire linear system has already hacked that. Uh, and is it possible that they start releasing these seasons in, in breaks of three per season rather than just like showering people in content that they forget about tomorrow yeah Uh, like like the the ironic thing about their model and i i think i understand why they did it and i i have said and i will continue to say that i i would have i never would have generated any cash if i were them um but it's like the faster they put out content the faster they depreciated their own content but like that doesn't have to be your perpetual state that that could have been the strategy to build out the asset base that exists today. And like, um, I think Ron Barron was on invest like the best. I think it was invest like the best. It was definitely a podcast. And I just listened to him talk about what he saw in Vale and how he, he thought through, well, you know, if we flex these assets in this way, look at what could happen here. And, um, I'm just really trying to think like he thought and, when I see all the asset bases in media, the only one that I, well, Disney I like, but Netflix I also like. I don't own either stock right now, at least not in size. I can't think of any exposure. So yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting because I feel like I'm quasi-rational on it. But I've had a bias to like them in the past, so I'm probably committed to that. I think that's the... That's the cruel trick of investing, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I think Netflix is probably still the best position. It's just more of a question of like, as we were saying earlier, like, is it, are you are you best positioned in, in, in something worth winning? 
Yeah, that's right. That is that is right. The the Roku bulls that I've talked to are arguing to me that Roku is very well positioned, and I need to try to open my mind up like enough to actually understand what they're saying. I'm open to the argument. I just don't understand it yet. So like I, I put a lot of work into Roku over the last four years. I owned it like in college, but like never like in a like in a professional investing way. And it was this thing that I always spent a ton of time on and never pulled the trigger. But the thing I just can't wrap my head around is, is you're pretty penetrated inside the United States. It's, I don't know. It, it just seems like it's hard to make money. On, I, I never understood like the bull case um, and how it plays out. And that that's, I don't, I don't think it's a name I'll ever understand. Well, I think the problem that I, well, the problem that I have had with it um, is like I turned on the Roku channel and I, you know, the Arrested Development season that I started to watch was truncated. It wasn't all this, all the episodes. The, uh, the ad insertion was absolutely terrible and that show actually had breaks for ads. So like they, they missed the breaks. I was like, what? This doesn't make sense. Um. And then I was always worried that you end up with a scenario where you've got at the end of all this, you know, I mean, right now I consider us in the fog of war in media, you end up with like, call it three big players. And how do you extract fees from them? Yeah. I don't think you do. Right. Like, like that's the thing I never understood. Right. Like every time I talk to someone about, about Avod, they're always like YouTube, YouTube, YouTube. So awesome. I'm long Roku. And I was like, but, but Roku doesn't make money off of YouTube. Yeah. Right. So like, I just, it's, it doesn't, it, it doesn't scale well for me. And, and, and I don't know, like the, the, the more consolidated things are, the harder it works. Like Roku, it, to, my, to my mind, looks like if you're long complexity and if things are actually getting harder, like they're not going to actually get more complex, like they're going to consolidate. And the thing is like for, for the stock to work in my mind, and maybe it's different now that the stock's so much cheaper. So I, I haven't looked at the valuation in detail to see like what you need to believe. But back when it was you know two hundred plus, like my thought process was you need to grow internationally in size for this to work. And you're competing against Amazon and Google, who have kind of failed in the United States, I guess you could say, but have much better distribution outside the United States. And yeah. I thought like the whole Roku model really relied on the fact that you were inside a TV that someone else paid you to be in. And now that there's other options, like why would they continue to pay you? That part never made sense to me. And I I just really don't think people buy TVs because there's Roku in it as much as people think. Like, I really think it has to do with like you buy a TV and it happens to have Roku and you bought it because it was cheap. And if you look at Vizio's S1, Vizio has arguably like a really bad OS for TVs, right? Like there's no way that thing is comparable to Roku. But if you look at the hours spent on a Vizio TV, only 8% of them in 2019 were using a stick and 6% in 2020 were using a stick. Hmm. So like not only are people like choosing to use the Vizio OS because it came with it, like they're increasingly doing that. And if people are willing to stick with that crappy OS, like (laughs) it makes me think no one's, no one's making the decision on a TV based on the OS. They're making the decision based on the TV. Huh? It's funny, I I have an LG that's new and it's 4K and I run it through Roku, but I wonder if I wasn't 
interested in Roku as an investment, would I do that? And I, I bet the answer is no. Yeah, because like, actually, I, 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 don't know, I like, think I'm on. I, I actually think the real truth of this uh, is that I'm on Roku because Comcast shitty beta app gets distributed yeah. through Roku. Like I, I, I use Amazon Prime just because like. I don't, I don't know. Like my, my family gave me a stick. So like I use it and my TV doesn't have like a smart OS, I think. So that's, that's, that's my thought process. So I have a stick, but like you're just clicking the Netflix app or you're clicking the HBO app. Like you're clicking these apps. Like, I don't know. I it, it never understood the thought process, but I, I have no idea. Maybe, maybe it works for me. I don't follow the business in detail anymore. Um, and there's a lot of other factors at play that I don't know. It's just I don't I don't I don't really get the the business case, and I I never really thought Anthony was like super committed to shareholders in like the same way that you would expect that another company like like a Google or an Amazon. Hmm. Will, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just sort of curious. I mean, this is so far. This conversation is so far outside my wheelhouse. Um, we can start talking about how much tin or something you need to put in a Roku device and what the supply demand dynamics of that are. If you'd like to, uh, that'd, be, okay. that'd be pretty. That'd be cool. I don't. I don't know. That'd be a little easier. That. Nice to learn. Um, but uh, I'm sitting. At, I do have a personal account though, and I do try to you know sort of do stuff in that account outside of the the world of energy and commodities. Um, and and I have looked at a couple of media companies. The one that I'm curious and you guys have mentioned it quite frequently, I'm curious if there's a bull case for it, um, is Paramount. Uh, because I'm sitting here listening to you guys discuss it, and you think about, okay, who's got a backlog of material? Who's already got an app? Okay, everyone, I guess, has got those things. But Paramount strikes me as the company most similar to Disney in terms of the quality of the back catalog that they've got. Um, and they also have some ability to produce that sort of trashy TV that's relatively cheap and you know you can turn out in in high volume yeah uh so is there a bull case for paramount and sort of what is it and what uh i guess what's the bear case also so i I mean my two cents and i i've just started to do calls on paramount and study it so i i'm not a hundred percent sure of what i'm about to say um but my gut reaction is that i totally agree with you uh, I think that the bear case is that they try to become like they really try to invest in the streaming wars and incinerate capital uh, because their their content doesn't stick for whatever reason. Uh, namely, they have an incentive to put their best content or maybe not an incentive, but I think that their current agreements mandate that some of the content goes to linear first. So it's not like as clean as... You know, I mean, I always talk about it, but I love it. Like the challenge can't go directly to Paramount Plus. If they could take the next season of the challenge and put it on Paramount Plus, I am a hundred percent a subscriber. And if if they can do two seasons a year, I'll never churn. Um, but like what they've done instead is they've got kind of like the old man's challenges on Paramount Plus, which I have considered actually uh, subscribing to. But I agree with you. I th- I think they have assets that that could have a ton of value. Um, you know, I don't know about the valuation and I haven't done the numbers and the math like I need to, but strategically, I think I used to, uh, di- overly discount them. And that's a, that's a shame because I was wrong. 
I really, I really like the uh, the Yellowstone shows. Like eighteen eighty three is also really good on Paramount Plus. But um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at it in in, in in like a year. But like my my thought process is like scenario A. Like you you dive into streaming and you continue to you know incinerate cash. Like they burn like I think it was like seven hundred eight hundred million dollars in free cash for the last quarter. Right? I think that was the number I saw. Um, that's just not a great situation. Like with like a levered balance sheet. And then secondly, the second scenario, like you decide like, okay, I'm not going to do that. Like we're going to be like a content arms dealer, but like that's still like deteriorating the linear business that you have. So I, I, I think the problem is like either scenario that you look at is not as good as what it was five years ago, where you were making money on linear, you were selling the same content to Netflix or someone else. And you're like double dipping the whole time um, and making tons of cash. It's, I don't know. I think, I think it's fine as long as like you can underwrite your base case where like the economics are a lot worse from what they were and the margins aren't going to go back to historical levels. But like when I see like people's bull cases or, or investment cases and Paramount and the other ones, like they assume that they get back to those margins that they had a couple of years ago, which I don't think is possible. But I mean, at this valuation, maybe it works. I, I just, I don't know. They do as have as great like content, just... though. I mean, they do. They yeah. do. So, from a, I guess, from a strategic perspective, do you guys think that having both a linear, and this is sort of more broad question, I guess, actually, because there are several people in this boat, having both the linear TV platform that you don't want to erode, while also trying to spin up a streaming content platform, is that? Is that a long? I mean, that's that terrifies such a confusing me, man. paradigm that no management team is going to figure their way out of that hole. Somebody may. I mean, this is this is what um what Zaslav has a little bit right. So um with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, but yeah, that's what makes mm. me nervous. I just don't know how you straddle the incentives of mm. I am getting a lot of cash flow from this. I need to build that, and I kind of. Uh, am gonna like be putting my lesser, uh, or I don't know. I mean, maybe you just have duplicative effort, but it just seems like a tough line to uh, to toe. And then you know, if you add some leverage on top of that, you got other concerns. It reminds me a bit of the uh, situation that large integrated oil companies trying to get into renewables uh, are in, where they've got the oil business that's high return, and they've got to figure out how they go green in a lower return uh, renewable business. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think it's kind of actually more extreme than that, right? Like, like, and you know way more about this than me and tell me if I'm wrong on this analogy, but like, even though like we're shifting from fossil fuels, like aren't, isn't the, the total amount of kilowatts being consumed from fossil fuels, like still growing each year? Um, yeah. I mean, in, in general, I'd, I'd have to look at, you know, what the actual sort of marginal, consumption is but yeah oil is still oil consumption still growing in in general yeah. and could grow so, quite dramatically in the right uh situation for emerging markets yeah so yeah right so like like my my thought process is like you have like in that that scenario you have like still a slightly growing business yeah that like almost no one wants to put capital into so like if you're already there like you're advantage versus in this one like a lot of people mm. want to put capital in it and like it's a deteriorating business. Mm. 
That's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty stark difference, actually. And, yeah. and like, I think and one thing to keep in mind, right, is so much of linear relies on sports. Um, and like, like, that's a huge, huge part of the business. And, and if you look at every single streaming service, right, like people, people have, are making slight concessions of moving certain games or maybe entire leagues in some cases from their linear networks to their, to their streaming services. Like, look at how much stuff is on ESPN plus that used to be on linear. And as that kind of continues to go through the, through the motions, right, you're going to be in a position where people are like, wait, I don't need a cable subscription at all to watch these sports channels. And then someone who might not even have sports, but is really reliant on the bundle is now in this position where like no one subscribed because no one watched their channel in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, and that, that's like a big deal. And I, I mean, the NFL is talking about doing their own app, right? So like their own streaming NFL plus, maybe that doesn't happen. But... Yeah. I bet they won't. They need, the, they want the reach, but I don't disagree with yeah. what you're saying. It reminds me of Ben Thompson's article when he used to say that the bundle is, um, I forget what he referred to it as, but he said, you know, it's like a tree that can wave back and forth. And then he switched to the bundles and Oak, which basically like once you push it too far, it just snaps. And if you get into a scenario where the bundle actually does snap and I, I'm not convinced it will, because maybe you floor out around 50 million subs and maybe that supports the economics. But if it does happen, um, that's tough. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you navigate that scenario because that's your cash cow. Yeah. It's tough. And uh, like, hang on, Keith. Hang on. I got to ask Will uh, while he's here. I don't know how long he's going to be here. Will, what do you do as a commodities analyst when everything is mooning? Uh, and like the, uh, the um, you know, the, I heard the pitch for tin. Like, how do you think through something like tin? Sorry, did you hear a pitch for tin from me? No, like, no, not from you. Two not years from ago, you. No, no. Yeah, well, probably two years ago. I should have. This is why I should outsource all these thoughts to you. But no, you know, they like um, things bubble up when the stocks go up, right? So that's yeah. what happens. Well, so I mean, don't don't touch tin now. Yeah, um, just <laughs> not as investment a, as a first. <laughs> there's a, you've got like three options. Uh, one of which is Alpha Min, which probably a bunch of people on Twitter know about. We've been in Alphamin for two years. They're going to sell it now at the peak. It's great. Good. But you've you've missed the boat already. Um, I think that with commodities and with equities, uh, unless you're capable of playing the entire life cycle of the asset, you have to recognize when your time has come and when it hasn't. Yeah. Um, if you can't play the entire cycle, by which I mean you know, right now we just move from having been invested in some mix of development opportunities and producers to just pure development opportunities. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, because what you get, of course, with wasting assets is a cycle. Okay. And, and so a new, a new mine is found or a new, you know, oil discovery or, or someone's building a new facility to process something. Um, those new things are going to trade, you know, at much lower multiples and are going to be, you know, much fewer eyes on them. Um, and so those are the opportunities we gravitate towards. Uh, what you can't do or what is likely to lead to an issue um, is saying, you know, tin is at 40,000. Uh, I got to go buy a tin producer. 
Um, well, at, at 40,000, which is, it's the it's, tin is now in the longest backwardation period of any commodity in the last 40 years or something. Um, you know, it's just too late. Uh, yeah. your, your, your margin of safety is way too thin. Um, we always miss the top of everything, right? You know, tin and everything will go much higher. Some of the tin companies will go much higher. Um, but there's a point at which sort of the fundamentals completely diverse, uh, divorce themselves from the, uh, you know, the underlying and, and trend and momentum takes over. And, and you guys know that it happens in the media space. It happens in the tech space too, but it's pretty nasty in the commodity space. Yeah. Well, it's the, uh, it's why, it's why these commodity stocks are so interesting to watch. You, you certainly get a lot of volatility. There's certainly a lot of excitement and there's certainly always something to do. Uh, but you can't allow yourself to be sucked into just thinking of the space as say, you know, Exxon Mobiles and the Rio Tintos of the world. There's, you know, our universe when we actually do, so we don't invest in anything less than 200 million, uh, but we do invest globally. And even with that 200 million market cap line, there's something like, I don't know, I, I think we've got 2000 mining firms to look at. Um, Whoa, you know, know people you don't, know. people don't realize that there are that many. Names. Um, if I said mine, you know, name all the mining firms, I bet this call could, we could only come up with a hundred of them or something. Yeah. So. I cannot. Jeez. Uh, so, so how do you look at, how do you compare, do you, do you like, the specific mining firms or do you like the streaming firms or what's your view on the difference between a streamer and a miner per se? Um, well, I mean, I, I, uh, that question sort of gets at a little bit of whether you're placing a commodity bet on an equity or you're making an equity bet in a company that happens to produce a commodity. Um, those two things are actually very different. Uh, we, place equity bets on companies that happen to be commodity producers. Um, and so the commodity directionality is always secondary to some fundamental factors that we think will actually outweigh the commodity price movement in the valuation of the company. Uh, streaming firms, you know, they mostly trade with the commodity. They're, they're a derivative of a derivative of a straight commodity bet. Um, so we don't we don't actually invest in that many streaming firms. Although two years, a couple of years ago, we invested in a uh, in one in, in the gold space. Um, but that was just because uh, they themselves were undervalued, in our opinion. I don't know if that answered your question, Keith. No, it did. Thanks. I think the answer is Will's like real deep in the weeds. So I, I, uh, my, my commodity strategy is, what do you think is interesting here? Sorry, was that for me? Oh yeah. I'd love to hear your answer too. You cover a space that is is very interesting and I know very little about, so it'd be awesome to to learn something. Yeah. What's interesting here. Um, Do, do you cover any of the steel names? Yeah. I mean, we, we've looked at steel from, uh, from time to time, um, we, uh, 
let's see. We, I mean, we looked at U.S. Steel last year. We thought it, it. We looked at it early in the year. Thought it was expensive. We're wrong, or at least we're wrong about the directionality of the stocks. They got more expensive. Um, so I, I think European steel is of more interest to me, just because they're further along the path of figuring out how to decarbonize the business that they're in. And from a long-term ownership perspective, that's critical. The U.S. guys are just sort of paying lip service to it, and it's going to be very expensive, and it's going to get increasingly expensive to transition if you're slow. Um, so that's a bit concerning. But there are definitely people on Twitter who know steel much better than I do, so I probably shouldn't comment that right, much. Right. Um, we're mostly, you know mining firms, uh, energy companies, industrial businesses other than steel. I think right now, you know, we, we still, I, I, there's still lithium names out there that I like. Lithium has gone crazy, but there's so little supply, uh, relative to demand. Uh, and that's not even theoretical demand. That's sort of like present demand or reasonable expectations based on what car companies say they're going to produce. Um, so there are a couple of lithium names that are still of interest. Um, nickel, uh, you put, put aside all that stuff that happened in LME, that's in the physical, you know, commodity nickel markets, got almost nothing to do with the nickel companies, but nickel is an interesting metal. Um, so we like European utilities quite a bit, uh, although a couple of them, um, we're short. Why European utilities? Uh, European utilities have already made a huge switch over to renewables and they've done so on the basis of a lot of very high priced power purchase agreements. And so their margins have expanded fairly dramatically over the last couple of years. And some of them have expanded fairly dramatically while still being, uh, producers of electricity via coal and things like that. And so those guys have trailed. Um, so that's like a company like RWE. Those guys have trailed behind some of the sort of industry leaders in those transitions. Uh, and now they are in the process of finishing exiting the coal businesses and should see some fairly significant multiple expansion. Um, as they have these same sort of high margin renewable businesses backed by PPAs and government sort of financing. If that, that makes a sense. lot of sense, that yeah. does make a lot of sense. So, um, RWE is the one we like the best. We have a position and there's a report on our website somewhere. So, um, check it out. I don't know. Now is, is very tricky though. Like most of what we're looking at is pretty niche stuff. Like, plastics producers out of Asia or shorting. Uh, we really like the idea, although we haven't found a name yet, uh, shorting some of the renewable power equipment manufacturers. Um, so they've all gotten hammered. This, this applies to solar or wind. Solar has sort of already played out a little bit. Um, but if you look at, say, the profit pool of the renewable energy equipment manufacturers, um, it's minuscule. Like these guys make no money. And if you right. look at something like the value chain for solar panels, all the money is made by a couple of guys who make polysilicon in China and everybody else is losing money. Um, what about like a uh, silicon carbide for the inverter? 
Uh, ooh, that's hyper specific. Also, um, I would like yeah, my yeah, partner. Yeah. Okay. Because like I used to cover semiconductors as like my okay. primary industry. Um, so yeah. like, yeah, like S and uh, like STM, um, which is ST yeah. Micro, and uh, yeah, Cree, which is now Wolf Speed. Yeah. And I guess you could also. I mean, there's some have smaller businesses. Really I mean, the only guys that are making money in the solar space are on that sort of very early stage yeah. polysilicon or, uh, you know, the, the the manufacturing of the components that go into the components that go into the solar panel, if you will. Um, everybody else is losing money, yet a lot of them are trading at reasonable multiples. Um, right. So uh, we think there's an opportunity there. Uh, on the short side. So it's tough now though. Um, a lot of things have moved. Um, it's, uh, a lot of, for us, we're circling or cycling out of a lot of juniors, miners that have moved from, you know, sort of development to production and into new development plays, um, holding on to our European natural gas and, you know, searching around in odd little industrial places. It's very interesting. You always like, I had no idea how large the universe was. Our Crazy. universe, so the full universe. So we do anything in energy, anything in materials, and select industries in industrials that are nowhere close to the consumer, basically. That's sort of one way of thinking about what we do. Um, put that $200 million market cap line on there, subtract China and India out of it. And we're looking at something like 6,000 companies with a market cap well north of 15 trillion. So it's actually a massive universe. Um, but people just don't really think about it. I mean, I feel like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it'd be a lot easier to like be long short in that space because there's so many companies that are tied to like maybe similar um, themes, but they have like their own variations rather than like in tech, you have business, like there's, there's not perfect substitutes for really anything. Yeah, no, we, um, I wouldn't, so I have 90% of my, you know, net worth, if you will, in our fund, um, we have to be long short. There, there's no other way to only be in this space. Uh, unless you want to, you, you end up, if you don't, you end up for all intents and purposes being some sort of uh, long commodity bet uh, that right. works out like once every 10 years or something and you make 400% uh, and then you struggle, you know, the rest of the time. Um, and, and if that's what you're going to do, you, you might as well just, you know, buy a, an ETF or be an ETF. Um so, yeah. Right. Very, very interesting. Now that I've hijacked the call. Sorry, Bill. No, I like I, it, man. I'm glad, that you, I'm glad you came on because I hear, you know, there's like people ping me with commodity ideas and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not trying to be closed minded to this, but like, I'm just not that interested. Uh, I'm trying to like be focused on stuff I can understand. So, uh, it's, it's reassuring when you come on and tell me, uh, yeah, it was a good idea two years ago. That that confirms my priors, and I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's um, I don't know, but that that's one of the great things, at least from from my perspective. One of the great things about the market is that we can all have a conversation. 
Yeah. Because uh, we all talk the same language, but everything is new that you guys are talking about in media to me. So it's quite, you know, it's quite, and not everything I'm talking about come on, is new to you. Um, but we can still communicate because <laughs> you've got some of the same kernels there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all still trying to find free cash flow and short turds. Yeah. If you do that kind of thing. Okay, well, I I appreciate you guys taking the time answering my questions. I do have to run. Um, It was good talking with you all, though. All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks for popping up. I look forward to reading your research on your website. Absolutely. Feel free to shoot me an email anytime. I will. Thank you. All right, Will. Have a good weekend, man. You too. What's up, Keith? Yeah, I mean, I guess guess the the question I had is you guys were talking about, like, how content the the the, i guess the conflict between putting content on different channels i mean my thoughts on that historically isn't that how how content's been distributed i mean you originally had if you go way back when it was in the theaters then it went to then it went to some kind of movie and there's some kind of a transition from starts out at really i guess unique channels eventually makes itself to network tv and then syndication in the end and so I think that process you're talking about is already happening, maybe just not in a streaming world. Yeah. And, awesome. and, my, and I guess my real question from streaming, if it's costing so much money, the, could there be a possibility that the whole thing could just, if there's other technologies that can provide the same capability, is there a possibility of this all streaming stuff just turning out to be a red herring, like, you know, like Betamax or something, just a, just a bad, way, expensive way to distribute content? That eventually just goes away. Well, yeah, well, I think that there's a possibility of that. I think the probability of that is is fairly low. And I guess that what get I agree with everything that you said. I think that one of the things that is different in and this is probably because I underappreciate history or something like that. But what feels different to me about this time is the the linear the association with linear like has created this situation where the consumer, whether or not Netflix is lighting money on fire, like you can assume they are for, for purposes of this conversation, consumers happen to like all that consumer surplus. And because of that, they're not on the bundle. And if everybody is now starting up streaming services to chase whatever, some of the parts valuation they think they can get in the market, um, like they're, they're not i fear they're not incentivized to make the bundle good and the bundle numbers are already indicating that people are leaving it so but 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 isn't there i mean part of the thing you when you sit down you think about the bundle if you try to reassemble that by buying all the pieces it can be it can be more expensive than the bundle so i think there is some for some people there is a economies of scale i would say for that yeah, now, I think right? we're going to rebundle, Keith. I mean, I I, yeah. I have said I said uh, like a week ago we're all going to miss the bundle one day. And, but I think like oh sorry go ahead go ahead. Go, go, go ahead go ahead. Like I think like first off I think the point you make is like really interesting on the windowing and, and distributing different ways. But I, I think like the distinction is like before there was like a clear window of who gets what and when. Now it's like you're having to prioritize one over the other on what business you want to grow. So I think it's like a different situation. But like, I, I think regardless of like how we view Netflix as like profitability now or not, I think it's really hard to say like streaming 
dies like because like streaming is just like by far better for the consumer as a way of consuming things right like well, well, it's I on your own yeah. time it's wherever you want you can cancel whenever you want I, I think the more of the question is like will you be paying more and like will the amount of content be different and i think that's that's probably true and i think it's it's undeniable that like netflix is super profitable in the united states like if, if they only had a u.s business it's like very profitable just because like you're investing all this content to grow internationally and that like that that's dilutive like they're definitely producing free cash for the United States and probably have for a, a long time. But um, if you're only looking at that business, but, but I think, Oh yeah, good. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess my question would be is, is there another way to provide the streaming functionality that isn't quite as expensive as streaming? So for example, could you do something from, I mean, you take a look at what Roku's done in terms of basically being able to do ad insertions of different people within. So a lot of the capability can be done with other platforms, Roku or possibly ATSC 3.0 for the broadcasters going forward. I think there's a lot of, uh, of fluidity in terms of what's really going to happen here. And it'll all be, in the end, it'll all play out. I, I'm just wondering if, you know, right now, the way that streaming is configured in terms of the cost, is there potentially a lower cost option out there that's that people are sort of experimenting with now that could work? Let me ask you well, a completely different question. What is, and I'm not trying to be like, I'm trying to understand where we are in this conversation. What is your definition of high cost of streaming? Well, I, I mean, and, may, and maybe I'm, I, I could be totally misunderstanding this, but people are talking about people spending all this money on streaming. Are they spending it on the tech platform? Or are they spending it on just aggregating content? It's crazy. Or maybe it's a combination of both. Right? I could talk I mean, to Netflix specifically. It's insane content spend. I think I think Comcast, NBC, uh, or Comcast, I think they said they're going to put into Peacock or their streaming efforts. I don't know how they're exactly defining it. I think they're calling it $5 billion. I'm pretty sure that Paramount guided to $6 billion in spend. Netflix is guiding to $18 billion in spend. Um, I can't do the rest off the top of my head. But I, I, the question that I have been pondering is, uh, you know, can you spend $18 billion smarter? Yeah. I, I mean, I think historically, if you look at the way the, that, that, Hollywood and content spend created, the answer probably is is no. I mean, there's a certain amount you're going to spend and get a good return. But if you keep on throwing more money at it, I think there's a certain amount of probably fixed return that may be growing. But someone's going to win that game and, and no one's come up with an algorithm to say, and maybe Netflix has an algorithm that better does it more efficiently and oh, may I be able to get sli slightly better than someone else. But but if they really haven't figured it out, then in essence, it's the it's the historical crapshoot, right? I mean, people I, have lost tons and tons of money in, investing in content over the past hundred years, and it's it's the way that business has always been. And where where the companies have made money is in the distribution, and right. they just the key the key to do it is to basically have enough content to make sure your distribution through your distribution channel people don't churn, and so. Just throwing more money at it, in my mind, is sort of the bad way to do it because you're sort of you're throwing up your hands and just saying, "Okay, I'm just going to throw tons of money at this," as opposed to do the historical model, which is try to figure out, "Okay, what's the minimum amount I can spend to prevent my customers from churning, right, and to keep my keep the customers there so I can get advertisers on my network." Yeah. So, Keith, I I, I agree with you. I don't disagree. I think your comments are exactly why the space is scary today. The question I've been trying to get myself to at least contemplate is now 
as the facts exist today, like Netflix has a $30 billion recurring revenue installed base. That's your asset. So how efficiently can you keep them there? And I think the number is a lot lower than $18 billion. I think the reason they are really, really shitty at doing it efficiently is they have never, ever had one incentive for the last 10 years to sit around a table and have that discussion. Not one. You know, there's 400 people at Netflix who have the right to greenlight a TV show or movie. At Disney, there's 10. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, their incentives yeah. have been spend money, stock go burr, get rich. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. So they that's, responded that's... to the incentives. So why can't they now not respond to the incentive to get efficient? No, I mean, I think they can. If you think about companies that have had long-term content, it hasn't happened by spending a lot of money. It's ha- if you take a look at Disney, for example, Disney is spent focused on a niche for what has it been? A hundred? I don't know if it's been a hundred years now, but it's been a really long time. They're a rare they continue bird, to, Well, but but that's how you that's how you can do well in content is if you focus on a niche and spend a long period of time. It, it's these things can't be built up by throwing money at it, right? I mean, because because the way people think about about the, the shows you love, right? I mean, the shows that everyone loves. It's not like all of them come out all at once. It's just over time, right? And you happen to like this thing, and it's it's. I, I think the pe- the missing piece in a lot of this stuff is ad sp- spending money doesn't give you hits. It's it, it has to be there's something that's undefined. It's it's you know and I think part of it's time and having a you know a, a good library over time is worth a lot. And Disney Disney has that. I mean the other issues like you guys have brought up, which is very this whole business is just fragmenting and it's getting smaller and smaller. So I think you had a really good point, Nick. Is Looking at the past profitability, I don't think ever, anyone's ever going to go back to that because yeah. bef- before everybody basically, when you had just the few networks, they were just they were just minting money. But the market just continues to segment, and so you're going to get smaller and smaller pieces. So the profit pool may grow a little bit, but it's going to get sliced up into smaller pieces. So it's you know for now. Well, I mean, do you, how how would that change going forward? People run out of money. I mean, Keith, if I was at Netflix, this is what I would be saying for the last 10 years. We're growing like crazy. Our U.S. business is, I mean, if if they're not lying in their disclosures, their U.S. business is running at like 50% margins or whatever. Um, yes, you've got Amort problems and, and there's a self-fulfilling problem of the more content you release, the more you're drowning people, the quicker your Amort is, the more you're ruining it. But like, they changed the way that everybody consumed content for at least a while. Uh, mm-hmm. And they did so by dropping eight episodes at a piece that people just binged and then like went away. Right. And and it just disappeared to the ether. Um, the question I would be asking now is I'd say, okay, we have a massive relative scale advantage Maybe TAM is smaller than we thought of. Maybe we shouldn't be completely global, and maybe we should just look at local, regional, uh, competitive zones that we have places to win. And what can we borrow from what cable TV did in the past, and how can we keep an installed base of $30 billion? Like, $30 billion of subscription revenue is a fuck ton of money. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that they just focus on that. They should... Can you be you know, a below the line growth story? 
I mean, can you do 10 billion of true cash flow off of $30 billion of recurring revenue? Well, I mean, like technically you could say it's higher than 30 billion because like they've had so many problems with FX and the dollar's been so strong. Like if that was to normalize, like it's a lot higher. It's like 32, 33, but. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. It's just what I've been trying to think of. And what I do know and what I think that has been clear is that the current model and the current way of doing things is not a actually sustainable business model. I fully agree with that. Um, but, you know, can you get creative? I, you know, I think like buying Paramount's assets would have been a good idea. It would have been nice if they did it in stock. And I don't know that there would have been a willing seller. They clearly need some franchises there. I don't know why there's not a new floor is lava every single week. It costs like $15,000 to put on that show. It's garbage. The same with uh, is this cake. Like my kids will watch that nonstop. They should have given Mr. Beast a show. That's what should have happened, though. Yeah, but he wants to own his own stuff. No, he, he he's like, I want a Netflix show. It's been like a continuous thing. Did he honestly say that? He says that like maybe every third episode. Oh, yeah. Well, they should totally give him a Netflix show. That's yeah, insane that, that they don't give him one. I know. Like that that would that would have been amazing. The guy the guy's got like two hundred and fifty million subscribers, like if you go across the channels, like it's that would have been the easiest thing ever. Yeah, that's and crazy. I, like, the guy might spend fifty million dollars a year on content. Like that's what he's like probably spending right now, but like on a Netflix level for the amount of subs, like that's not that much. Well, and they'll light a hundred million dollars on fire on a movie that does nothing. So why not give right, that like, guy something? Yeah. Be yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean I, it's good. It's going to be interesting if, if Netflix gets into the AVOD game because that'll probably make it a little bit more competitive than what it already is. But I'm, I'm just, you know. I got to understand I, Roku. I know really smart people that are really bold up on Roku, and I got to understand it. I just need to, whatever I need to do to open my brain, I need to do it. I, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I've looked a little bit at Roku, and the, and the one, I guess, thing I've sort of struggled a little bit with is, you know, part of their model, as I understand it, is to get into these, get into the TV sets. But at this point, they don't have; they've got somewhat of a share there. But to me, it just seems like they're 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 going to compete against the giants, the the apples and the Google. And in that in that game, I'm not sure if they're if you know if they would win a game against Google and Apple for the TV. I'm not sure. And I, could they? There's probably other ways that they can make money outside of that. And that's maybe what I'm totally missing. But, um, you know, I think that's that, that's sort of what's going around in my mind about Roku in regards to that. Prepare for me to shut up and let a smarter person it, speak. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Would yeah. you like to go? Yeah, he probably don't. Did, did someone say Roku? What, so, someone did Roku? say Roku, sir. Someone, someone said Roku. Um, yeah, first of all, Bill, I, the, the comment, um, I'm not sure if you made it or somebody else made it, but. I mean, the thought of Netflix buying Paramount is actually not a terrible idea. I mean, it's uh, at least from a content side, right? Like, I mean, it, it does make sense in that it would give them sports rights. It would give them a great library. Of course, everything has a price. And maybe if they were going to do it, they should have done it when the currency was when their currency was a little bit more valuable than it is today. But I, th- I thought that that comment was very, very intriguing and one that I've thought about. A lot. Um, NBCU, but, man. Imagine if Brian Roberts bought NBCU out of the global financial crisis out of GE and flipped it to Netflix at basically the top. <laughs> that would be so gangster. But I, I, was, I was just like thinking back. Netflix at five fifty a share could have bought 
what is now Paramount for seventeen dollars a share. I know, and and you know what, guys? <laughs> like, what 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 kills me so much about it is that, like, at and and correct me if I'm wrong, but like at at five hundred, and this is part of their problem, right? Like at five hundred and fifty dollars a share, like investors are happy. No one's asking any questions. Like you just got to keep going on with the current strategy. So how could they buy, you know, Paramount at whatever price at that, at, you know, at 550 oh, yeah. a share, you know, it's the actually almost, been down on that. News it would, because well, <laughs> it would have been down, but you know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's down anyway, but I guess, I guess my point is, is, is like, it's, it's from an event to, it, it's almost easier for them to justify buying Paramount today right with the stock where it is than it was at 550 even though strategically it would have been a better decision right to do so at 550 um but um anyway but in in terms of roku i mean it, it is an interesting admission by netflix for sure it's it's not clear 100 that it's a direct ben like roku is a direct beneficiary of that right because we i mean let's be real. We, we, we don't even know if, um, and, and compounds on here, he, he, he had some really great insights and points on this, but we don't even know if, you know, they're even going to pursue an AVOD solution. It seemed like it was very haphazard in the way that they communicated it. Um, and if they do launch an AVOD solution, you know, unless if they, you know, unless if Roku gets a share of inventory or some type of, content in kind to resell we, we we really don't know you know if they're going to be able to monetize that but the way i look at it is that it's an opportunity where the bear case on roku for a long time was like so much of streaming consumption is netflix and youtube and all these content partners that they can't really monetize because they're the original content players so now this is an opportunity for you know roku or yeah for roku to potentially monetize that relationship um but just on the share point i mean they have significant share i mean they they one in three smart tvs today are sold in the u.s are, are smart you know sold are roku tvs right and i think people are still sleeping on you know the player part of the business where yeah i mean it's easy to say the future of smart tvs it's operating system built in sure but you know play, they still sell a lot of players and, and people still buy those devices um, so I wouldn't be sleeping a hundred percent on that side of the business either, even though, you know, obviously the future's, you know, going to be these, you know, Roku TVs and the smart TVs and operating system and licensing. Um, but, but, but they but have would, really good share. But, but wouldn't you think that once Apple or Google gets into the market, that that would be no, a totally no, 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 no. So okay. look, a, a, a few things. Like, and I'm very confident on this. First of all, Apple has been out there with Apple TV forever and a day. The reality is that it's an expensive device. They've already passed on this market opportunity. Um, and what sells in terms of these devices and the OS is is, is price, right? Um, so Apple's too expensive. It caters to a very premium user. Don't get me wrong. It's Apple TV is a great product. Um, but it, it, it's not going to cater to the masses, which if you're looking to maximize your adjustable market, especially in a market like AVOD, where already you're kind of, you know, looking at maybe your median to, you know, lower end consumer, right? That's going to be in Roku's favor, not necessarily Apple's. Um, and then Google and is, has already been dominant, especially internationally for a very long time. 
Android, um, they have the most market share XUS. Um, in the US, they've been competing against them with Android TV um, <clears throat> uh, for a very long time as well. And so it's, it's, it is a funny dynamic, right? Because you can say that they're competing against giants and like there's all this competition, but yet they have, you know, 50 plus million active accounts. And, and yes, a lot of those are in the US. But wouldn't the threat of competition be greater when they were only, you know, 4 million accounts, you know, five, six years ago? So they've done a very good job of growing their brand with minimal marketing dollars, uh, paid marketing dollars, that is, uh, in the U.S. And I don't think Google offers anything uh, or Apple offers necessarily anything that's incremental that would justify them to gain significant market share against Roku, especially as long as Roku maintains their, you know, distribution agreements with the China, you know, the Chinese OEMs, TCL, Hisense. So not to dismiss competition outright, because it's always something you have to watch, right? I mean, everyone dismissed competition with Netflix. We all saw what happened, right? Like just little things on the margin matter a lot. So you always have to pay attention to it. But I think Roku has a much stronger position competitively than a lot of people appreciate. Um, and that's still true today. I, I guess the question would be, in longer term, are there other solutions that could go around Roku? I mean, you have the operating systems of the TVs. Once you get ATSC 3.0 in these TVs, you got some channel, back channel for the broadcasters to go forward with ATSC 3.0. So it sounds like there's a number of different potential options that could happen here. I mean, Roku, I, I think, is in a great, a great position now, but how do you look at the future in terms of these you know, other potential solutions that could be you know cheaper competitors than than um than roku i mean atsc 3.0 i you know i don't i don't think that's that big of a risk um <clears throat> you know really it comes down to how the oems are going to be building like it just comes down to like what the oems are going to do right you can it, the the model right and the way that we've built it out and thought about the adjustment market is basically all right, let's look at every single TV manufacturer in the world. Let's look at every single country in the world. How many TVs are sold in market every single year in terms of share shipments, right? And then look at what their what their software relationships are, right? Do they build it themselves? Is it a Samsung? Is it a Tizen, right, with their, their operating system? What's LG doing? What's TCL doing? And then you look at who they're licensing, you know, that against and that's really what you have to look at because they're just selling in the customer acquisition cost, you know, for Roku, you know, in this situation is, is very, very low. And you also have to keep in mind that the lifetime of a TV, at least in the United States, is somewhere between five to seven years and you know, potentially going you know, longer. I think competitively or the, the biggest risk that I can think of for a Roku is you know, OLED, right, potentially, because LG kind of controls that that market. But, you know, you, you do have to think about the, the broader addressable market for TVs, where a lot of the TVs sold in terms of volume are the lower end TVs, the 30, 40, you know, 50 inch models um, that, you know, sell for well under $500. And Roku has a large share of that. So I, I'm less concerned about ATSC, 
3.0 and like what the broadcasters are going to do. I think that's actually more risk for Fubo, quite honestly, even though Fubo is like, you know, sub five. So it's probably not even interesting for anybody. I agree with that, that one for sure. But um, I, I, I think that it, it's been interesting just to kind of speak with clients and see what's going on on Twitter and just the, the broad dialogue because everyone's like, I mean, if Netflix is serious about getting to AVOD, I think it's a very, you know, meaningful admission that, you know, that this is a real market opportunity, that there's a premium video ad supported opportunity globally. That's not just going to be youtube right which is not necessarily premium video but you get the point right like that there's that there's this market opportunity that actually comcast with peacock has tried to you know exploit right with their four quadrant framework and i I know a lot of people hate on peacock and there's been and it's whatever but i actually think for what they're doing and the amount of capital that they invested they're actually doing a better job than i think people are giving them credit for but i don't want to get too off topic no, that's fine. I like that topic because I, I like to crap all over Peacock because I think it has no share of mind. But I, you know, I have learned to appreciate what Brian does. He's very, very smart and I am not. But but here's the thing, Bill, like, you know what? Like, you don't have to look when you're doing an AVOD based approach. Share of mind is always going to be important and engagement and driving engagement is always going to be important. Like, so don't get me wrong, but <clears throat> it's. Oh, it's more about reach, right? When it yeah. comes to, you know, selling ads on TV. And so to the extent that they get a Super Bowl, you know, they, they pump this thing they're doing in the Super Bowl and they get a bunch of users, even if it's ad supported, like everything I'm hearing, quite honestly, from some of the largest uh, agencies and brand advertisers out there is like compared to all the other AVOD models that have been launched, HBO Max, Paramount Plus, Discovery Plus, Paramount's actually performing the best for them, both in terms of price and reach. And I think that's partially because of the way that they structured and they positioned the product in the marketplace, you know, as more of a AVOD first um, approach versus subscription. I have, uh, I I don't want to misframe exactly what I've heard, but I've been doing calls now for a couple weeks on this and I have been very surprised to hear how consistently AVOD is a very good offering uh, has come up and I've been very surprised to to uh, hear people's bullishness on Paramount Plus um, you know it has it has opened my eyes to a previous blind spot yeah I mean my take there is if <laughs> If only I had conviction that they could scale the business, right, for Paramount and that, you know, the unit economics would be better going forward than where they are today. And that, you know, maybe five years down the road, we could talk about a business that's equally profitable, if not more than it is today. Um, You know, I would be very positive on Paramount just generally. That's my hurdle, right? Because actually everything that they're doing I think they're executing at a very high level and they're very being very smart in terms of how they're negotiating wholesale distribution agreements with other carriers across the globe for Paramount Plus. It, it makes all the sense. And I think Pluto, you know, is a very interesting asset. And I think that they're leveraging it very well in terms of 
using it as a freemium model to drive more acquisition for Paramount Plus. So they're doing, in my opinion, like a very good job. I don't think I critique them in any sense. I think the rising, they're being very smart in terms of leveraging the IP um, and investing in the type of content that really maximizes awareness and drives acquisition. So they're focusing on getting that higher ROI, which is everything that Netflix really hasn't done. Um, or at least they haven't been as focused as I think they should have been. So um, the problem is like, you know, at the end of the day, right, does it drive more profitability through the business? And that's something that's yet to been seen, which is why you know, I've always said like streaming is kind of a terrible business model. If you really think about it, it doesn't mean it's not a great product and you can't love it as a consumer. But if all that value is accruing somewhere else and it's not accruing to the company or the shareholders, that's that's always going to be an issue for your valuation at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess uh, I mean, I'm sure you heard me say it, but the question that I'm, I'm just trying to ask is, is it inherently a bad model or is it a bad model as has been approached thus far? The reason it's been approached thus far this way is because of all the incentives were never for them, like Netflix specifically to slow down and think, do we need a return on this? Because it just wasn't what anyone cared about. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I think it, it's. If you think about markets and industries and return on and, and what's sustainable and what's not sustainable, I mean anything can be sustainable, right? If you have if if the number of players that are involved and the amount of capital that's being invested at the right price is appropriate. Yeah. Um, the issue with streaming is that you just and and we talked about this on the the spaces. I don't know, was it yesterday or the day before? And you know, Akram's on here and he can speak to it too. But the the theme and and what we've always talked about in my view is that. Like the the industry economics were are were just wholly unsustainable in, in in media with respect to streaming. Yeah. Right. So you know it's, I mean to to read that information article and see that Netflix is finally like pairing it back and considering and focusing on quality and ROI and all these things. I mean you know these are all things that they, in in theory you know should have done from the get go, albeit. You know, I admit that they probably wouldn't be able to get to the place that they are today in terms of number of subscribers if that was their approach from the get-go, right? Because they because they were the the new entrant, right? They they were the disruptor. So in order to get this market share, they had to do that. Um, and so now, you know, we're in a point of rationalization. You know, Disney, like everybody, every Disney, Paramount, they've all increased their content spend significantly um, to try to take share of engagement. Um, but there will have to be some type of rationalization because they're not making any money. And so yeah. maybe this was like really the point here, right? Where like Netflix pulls back and then you can have some type of profitability at scale. Um, so maybe it's not going to always be a terrible business, but in terms of the way that where we were, it, it really has been. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the big thing. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, um, Yeah. I think this is going to be a really interesting point because, um, I mean, I've said it now a couple of times. I'm sorry for repeating myself, but you know, you see like Comcast spend, Paramount spending six billion. Like th th these are real numbers, and it feels to me, and I may be wrong, that they're out there chasing, you know, the the multiple that Netflix got. Well, I mean, that just went away. So now, I what know. are we all doing? It's amazing, right? Yeah. It's just like I, I mean, it, like. 
<laughs> go all in on streaming. You have to do it, guys. <laughs> yeah. Just spend, spend, spend as much as you can. Oh wait, oh that's a bad idea. You're not making any money. <laughs> Your stock's down fifty percent in six months. It's just, it. Oh gosh, it's only something Wall Street could cook up, right? Like in terms of like incentivizing people to do a certain thing that's not sustainable. It, it it's it's fun. it's just amazing to watch it all all happen but look look it will always rationalize you know media and streaming is not the first time in history uh, or case study of an industry where you have you know a lot of players a lot of capital chasing you know a certain type of market opportunity that turns out to not be as large as people think and then you have a rationalization in spending after yeah and usually you, the hangover is pretty painful but those that can survive on the backside actually end up you know emerging as those that are very very profitable right and so i would not be surprised assuming let's assume that reed hastings and ted sarandos and team are really good operators and they can execute in this kind of more mature environment, the Netflix should emerge given their share of engagement as a relative winner. Um, you know, but it's going, but they, they're going to have to execute, right? Like they're going to have to uh, be very, very deliberate in terms of what they're spending their capital on. Um, so we'll see who wins at the end of the day. I mean, I think Disney is going to win uh, just given their strength of their IP and the assets that they have. Um, and, you know, they have the parks. Thank God they have the parks. If it wasn't for the parks, the yeah. stock would be, like, you know, God knows what. Um, but it's but it's hard, you know, it, and that's the problem being a media investor these days is that the industry is in flux and return on invested capital across the industry is going down. Um, but this might be the bottom, like this might be the worst. Right. And so, but, but that, so you have to tread carefully, but you know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough environment as of right now. Do you ever listen to the podcast, the town with, uh, I think it's Matthew Bologna. So I, uh, I actually subscribe, uh, to, to their newsletter. I, I had not listened to the podcast. Listen to the uh, podcast with Rich. It dropped oh, like Wednesday. Rich. Yeah. You got to listen to it. Rich. I can't. Yeah. I, I mean, if, I, if you I, I want to try to figure out whether or not we're at a bottom in sentiment for streaming, I would listen to that podcast. I think you will okay. pour okay. yourself a glass of wine and take a listen. All right. I will definitely do that. <laughs> I think you Thank might you. get a kick out of it. <laughs> All I mean, right. Do, do, do you guys think that, that, that Netflix can be a profitable business without AVOD, without advertising based type of a system and can completely, you know, do, do relatively well just on a subscription base? I personally think oh. it's possible. I just think that it requires totally reorienting how you release content and what you're focused on. I find it hard to believe that they can't figure out how to make more Lion Kings. I find it hard to believe that they can't invest in Flora's Lava. Flora's Lava is this cake. Like People are willing to watch complete trash. Uh, I just don't think they've ever... They've, they haven't thought that way. They've just been spending well, money for, like well, drunken Bill, sailors. Bill, is, is, is this case... Is this cake? That's not trash. That's I true. Love it's that. fantastic. It's I mean, fantastic. it's fantastic. I mean, but but that's what they need to do, right? Like, and and, and I think the lack of content strategy, the lack of clarity. And we talked about this a couple of days ago, and you know, I thought this for a long time, but 
like they need to figure out what their brand is around the content that they that they produce and they need to focus their content dollars around that. So can it be a sustainable business um, over the long term and profitable um, as a subscription only business? Absolutely. Um, The question just becomes what's baked into the stock price and then what is. Um, you know, what do you think your TAM assumptions are? Because if you're banking on 500, 600 million subscribers, you know, sometime in the future, I'm pretty, I can say with a lot of confidence that that's not going to happen without AVOD, without an ad supported model. Um, But if you're looking at a more conservative, um, careful approach to capital allocation and content budgets, then yeah, maybe they can do what they can do today. Um, because I do think that there's more pricing power. And the last thing I'll say is that like the issue this last quarter was really just around the basic plan price, right? Like they have a lot of, um, pricing power, I think on the, on the premium or premium side, it's really the basic plan that always gets them whenever they try to raise price. Akram, what's up, man? Happy Friday, Mr. Happy Friday. I just wanted to say every business on earth can be profitable. So exactly. That's, that's a gr- ridiculous. That's- we work was profitable for its first two years. But yes, if you wanna if you wanna grow and you want hyper growth, <laughs> uh, it's a different ballgame. It's just at what scale can you be profitable and for how much? I mean Netflix is free cash flow profitable right now. They're what is no, they're a self-sustaining business, dude. I mean, they've dropped. They've dropped. Yeah. 12, they, they they consumed eleven and a half billion in capital uh, to get to two hundred and twenty million subscribers over ten years. No, I I understand that, but but the question becomes is like, yeah, you can look at this last quarter, but the really question becomes, can they sustain that? Right? Like they're losing subscribers this last oh, quarter. Yeah, they're yeah, not yeah. growing. You know, so like, can I know, they... but I think that's a good problem to have if you're at seventy five percent market share. I mean. Well, I mean, do they, they but they don't have 70, they don't have 75% market share. Like you have to think about all of like TV consumption broadly. Like, you know, you can look at share of subs, you can look at share of revenue, but you also have to consider like sports news, yeah, you know, everything first, else I mean, that people spend. In terms of penetration into households, let's just say the 300 million addressable market of potential subscribers really. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, the, the question regarding free cash flow and scale and profitability is just around like with with any business, right? Like, what is your level of maintenance capex essentially, or content spend versus growth capex? Like, how much do they have to spend every single year in order to sustain the business, right? And, and so you can say that, oh, look, they're free cash flow positive, but they're also losing subs. Okay, well, how much do they need to yes, spend I mean, per they, year they, in they order lost, to sustain that? Andrew, I don't want to bust balls here, but they've lost. They've given guidance to lose. What is two, what's what is it? One per one uh, percent, less than one point nine percent in a quarter, um, right at, in in the six month window of. Uh, yeah, no, look, that's that's after a price look, that's, that, that's totally fair. Look, I'm not right. going to sit here. Yeah, I, I will never sit here and say like, look, they like we're, we're talking. I mean, everybody, everybody's up their ass on this. And by the way, they deserve it. They really fucked this up from a communication standpoint. Yeah, but but, but look, but at the end of the day, like I get it, right? Like we're talking a fraction of percentage uh, percentage points on a very very large base, right? And so you know, it's really uh, the stock price reaction. A lot of it just comes down to. 
you know, what are you paying for the future growth? What's priced into the stock? Yeah, it's had hills in all the same names. I mean, yeah, it's, like, yeah. Been nothing but, like the fucking two thousand crash wasn't like this. So, uh, mm-hmm. what's happening right now? It, 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 if you're an e-commerce company, a social media company, or a streaming company, is unprecedented. I mean, <laughs> tell me about it. I feel like I'm going to be out of a job in like six months. The way that like XLC is going, like the fucking communication space is just fucking on fire. Like Andrew, every, every, I feel like you would be one of the quickest people picked up by a fund if you were to lose your job. Oh, based on this. I appreciate that. Anyone that's listening, anyone that's listening, you know, if I'm on the market in six months because the XLC goes to zero, dude, you know, we'll do a podcast every single day until you get a job. XLC. All right. Thanks, Bill. I love you, man. Yeah, I love you, man. I got you back. I, I, I think we're, you're a we're good being, dude. I, yeah. No, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but like the point is like an acronym, you're right. Like there's a market dynamic here, but there's also a competitive dynamic. Right. And, I think the reality with Netflix is that, like, look, the bull case just got way out of hand. People were banking on way too much for future growth. Like anything, like all things, things shoot to the upside, they shoot to the downside. And, you know, going forward, um, will they be able to figure it out? Probably, right? Like there'll be a price. And we talked about the other day, like, you know, if 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 Netflix's stock gets to 150, then yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's like you're basically you're basically assuming that they're never going to grow at any subscribers ever again in the future, you know. And that's and so your risk reward and taking the shot on the long side on any type of turnaround is is pretty attractive, uh, at least probable, you know, in terms of probabilities. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's still, you know, they, they haven't executed as well, in my opinion, as I think they, they could have. Um, I mean, I, like, I think that the biggest issue here is that they're at a point in their life cycle where things were turning and like, it seemed like, so when your thesis is essentially, uh, the opposite of what management is thinking, you do actually have to, to, to sit there and think about it. So, I mean, when we got really into this last year, right, like, I was just like, look, they're going to grow subs like 4 or 5%. Uh, and, like, that's just reality. They must know that. But ARPU is going to grow, like, probably 8 9%. So, like, clearly this management team took uh, took 2020 as, you know, whatever, like, this COVID outperformance, 2021 as, uh, you know, pull forward, and then 2022, it looks like the way they're looking to spend on content for 2022 into 2023 was assuming that they would go back to adding subscribers at the rate that they were adding in 2019, right? Mm-hmm. And like, if they have that assumption, then you're like, did they actually think that the the, the market was bigger, right? I mean, take a market no. like Russia, right? Like, you have 700,000 subs. There's 150 million people. Uh, there's nothing you're going to do, whether it's AVOD or make sexier content, that's going to change the fact that everybody there pirates and you should have already had yeah. subscribers in Russia. My, yeah. So like, but, but, totally yeah. Look, 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 I, I don't mean to cut you off, but m- my thinking, like, just if I'm like, and I could be completely wrong in this view, but you know, I, I think that if, if any, if, if you're a management team, right. And you're thinking strategically, you need to be doubling down. If you're Netflix, right, you shouldn't be reacting to the current environment, right? That's probably a mistake because like we talked about yesterday regarding where we are in the adoption cycle, they're reacting to a slowdown in the business post-COVID, post a massive pull forward in demand. 
and 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 which may or may not be right the the actually true adoption curve that they're on uh, you know they could be overshooting to the downside and the best management teams with the best vision and the most confidence in their forward outlook will be saying like look we're going through a tough time right now, but we're really confident that we're going to get back to trend and that this market opportunity exists and that they're going to continue to invest for the future growth of the business. And the thing is, is that I don't think Netflix is doing that. They seem to be very reactive, especially how they you know, talked about this last quarter. Um, you know, yes, the narrative got out of control. So maybe this is just opportunistic in that sense. Right. But like, you know, I think about a Roku where um, if I was, you know, Anthony Wood and that, and that team and what they've communicated and, you know, they report earnings next week. So this could be absolutely wrong, but they should absolutely be taking this opportunity to double down and triple down and on investing and growing their business in the long term because it's all cyclical, right? You know, you know, you should be investing when things look terrible because things will stop looking as terrible in the future and vice versa. So, you know, maybe that's a little contrarian on my part and I get capital markets don't necessarily always work that way, but, you know, kind of zigging when somebody else zags is, is typically the right approach, you know, whether it's respect to making investment decisions as, you know, as we all do, or, you know, as a capital allocator, um, so that's that's my take. You know, I think I think well, they should be point, really like pushing they it. Should have, they should have headed that off. I mean, if if you look at what they've communicated between the report last quarter and the report this quarter, I mean, again, to someone like me watching this, it's it, it's really like with with what's going on in the macro for and the fact that they just did take a price hike and you put all these things together. You're just like, well, why didn't you guys think that there was potentially a, a possibility here that you could have a negative print with where you're at in the U.S. and Europe? And like the fact that even last quarter, you didn't really add anyone in Latin America. Yeah. I mean, so. I blame, I blame, no offense to anyone that's listening to this, I, I, I absolutely blame Netflix investors. 